to open your Bibles to the book of Mark. And, um, you know, it is, I don't mean to be gimmicky. I hate to be gimmicky. You know that I sometimes run the other way. When, when, when a thought or a smell of a gimmick, I, I actually run the other way, and I, I go far to try to avoid it. But there's remembrance. And uh, I want to I, I talk about something that Jesus told us and something that's a big part of our life, which is remembering, remembering what he's done. As Naomi said at the beginning of the service, remembering what God has done is very important. Yeah, we're going to remember our, our veterans. We're going to remember the soldiers that fought. We're going to remember them today. But above all, in every day, we need to remember something. We need to remember the goodness of God. It's tricky because we've, we've often turned the word past into a bad word. And this is because once we got a revelation that Jesus set us free from the guilt and shame of the past, we're pretty happy to get rid of it. And uh, so we're excited to say, I don't, I'm not bound by my past anymore. And you're absolutely right. But you know, not everything in your past is bad. Jesus put those sins under the blood. He covered, he completely removed that guilt and shame from your past. But there are good things in your past. There should be. And if there are, there are things you need to remember, and there's things you need to remember that maybe didn't even happen to you. You know how many times the Lord says to the Israelites in his communication with them as they wandered in the wilderness, how many times he says, make sure you don't forget. Don't forget this. And in case they were tempted to forget, he, he made them, well, he I mean, wasn't, didn't have to twist their arm. This was fun. But he had them celebrate feasts on certain occasions to remember certain things, right? So, uh, you know, the, the Feast of Passover was remember the time when the angel of death passed over because we put that blood on the doorpost. And every time we remembered, we're also looking ahead. And they didn't know this, but they were looking ahead to what Jesus would do as our Passover lamb. Well, the, you know, so you have all these feasts that mean different things. You have Joshua crossing the sea, crossing the Jordan. And as that Jordan splits, what happens they set up stones to remember this. We're going to put up memorial stones to say, and, and, and he says this, when our children ask us, what do these stones mean? We're going to tell them what God did. If you study it out, you find, at least this is the way I read it, that there are actually two sets of stones. Because what when, when Joshua set up those stones, it says he, he put some on the bank, and he put some right in the middle of the river. And what it appears to be is that they were to remember two things. They were to remember that, that, yes, God brought us to the other side of the Jordan safely and dry. But you'll recall that the Ark of the Covenant carried the presence of God, proceeded before them. They stood ankle deep in the water until it split. And then they proceeded and stood in the middle of that river until everybody went through, which showed them that the presence of God didn't just go before them, but stood with them in the middle of the river. So there's a memorial, there's a set of stones on the other side that says God brought us through. And that's important. It's important that you remember that God brought me through that. It's important that you saw the other side, the light at the end of the tunnel, thank God I'm done. But you also need to remember God stood with you in the middle of the river. As you walked through the valley of the shadow of death, you didn't have to fear for God was with you. He wasn't just ahead of you saying, come on, join me over here, he walked through that with you. So in all these things, we remember 
that God did take us to the other side, and we remember him on the other side, but we also remember in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the attack, in the midst of everything that's ever gone wrong, if you held on tight to him, he didn't leave. He stayed there. He stood there with you. And Paul said, one of my favorite verses, I say that about almost all of them, right? You caught me. But in one of my favorites, he said, you know when he said, everyone deserted me, no one stood with me, and I was by myself on trial, and death looked imminent. He said, nevertheless, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me, and he rescued me out of the mouth of the lion. So there's these times where you know, you notice the, the three things he said. He stood with me. First and foremost, he just stood with me. Sometimes you just need to know Jesus is standing with you. He's right there. He didn't leave you. He's not calling to you on the other side saying, come join me here. Get your butt over here. He's standing with you wherever you are. Not only that, but he strengthened me when I, when I stood with him. And he delivered me. He rescued me. So that was the end of the story was I was rescued. But the middle of the story was what, before I saw rescue, I felt the strength. That comes from standing in the presence of one who's been there. One who's been dead and now lives forever. One who never will taste death again. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And when he stood up and said that to John, and when John is on the seemingly God-forsaken Isle of Patmos, but apparently it wasn't God-forsaken, because God met him on that island, and he said to him, John, look at me. And John's like freaked out because Jesus is a little bit different than he remembers him. And he says, I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha Omega. I was dead, but now I live forevermore. And I have the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Can you imagine that any depression John may have felt? Because I imagine you'd feel depressed on an island like that. Even a good guy like John who knows the depths of the love of God, even a man like him might have had danger. You go, why am I on this rock? you got to understand that that guy, his, his job in life, his his life's passion was to be an apostle to the people of Asia Minor. He lived in Ephesus, encouraging the church. You take an old man who loves to encourage the church out of that situation. Don't you know he misses them? Don't you know he feels like, what, am, what good am I doing here? My people are over there. The people I love, my family, the ones I gave my life for. I can't even, I can write them letters, but I can't be with them how I wish I could be with them. And Jesus shows up and he says, here I am. Don't worry. Don't fear. I'm here. I've already died, and I'll never die again. And neither will you. And he says, I've got the keys to death, hell, and the grave. It doesn't matter what you do, do to you, John. And they, they tried to do some things to him. As you know, they tried to boil him in oil. He came up riding the hook. They tried to do many things. And he survived it. And as he's on that aisle, Jesus says, I'm with you. So in all these things, we've got to remember. We have to remember. We have to remember, remember, remember. And so as much as we make the past a bad word, forget the past, he says. Sometimes you need to remember the past. You just have to choose what you remember. Because Jesus said he has thrown your sins. What do we call it? The sea of forgetfulness, right? He, those are gone. He says your sins I will Remember no more. Doesn't mean he can't recall them. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that every time God, you read the Bible out loud, God says, that happened? <laughs> I 
what? <laughs> like he's just, every day I'm surprised by this. And then he forgets right away. Moses did what? Doesn't mean he doesn't have a recollection of it. But it means he doesn't, it doesn't play a part in your pe- present or your future. It means he, it will never come on your account. It means he will never bring it up again. It means that it is not playing into the picture of what he's doing in your life or how he sees you. That, that though it's there, it's not there, if you know what I mean. It may have happened, but to him, it's clean, it's gone, it's washed. And so when I think back on my past, I have got to think the way Jesus sees it, the way God sees it, and know that there were some things, yeah, there was some stuff I'm not proud of, but I've separated that. That's not part of me. That part, that was crucified with Christ. That's dead. I I reckon it dead and, and gone. But what I do look back, I remember the goodness of God in my life. And you've got to, because there are times where you've got to go back on that and not just say, I know God's good, but you have to be able to say, I know he's been good. I've been here before. It's not my first time. I've, I've been here. This is, this is not unique. I have been in situations. Other people have been in situations, and they live to tell. And I will too. And, and God, he was good to them, and he'll be good to me. You know, the book of Hebrews you know, if we were supposed to just completely forget the past, what in the world is the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 about? It's talking about what God did through these men and women. And then later on in the next chapter, he says, remember those who came before you. He says, remember the former days when you were enlightened. Then he says, remember those who went before you. Imitate their faith. There are certain things God wants you to remember. And there are certain things you've got to forget. So in Mark, we read about this, you know, there, there were two incidents, two major incidents where Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish. We know that he did that in, uh, to the 5,000, and he did it in front of 4,000. The 4,000, sometimes you don't realize he fed 4,000 people until you force yourself to, to read the whole Gospels. Why? Because when we're kids, the little kids' books don't really want to duplicate the same story with 1,000 less people, right? So we didn't hear about the parable. We didn't hear about Jesus feeding the 4,000 because it wasn't as cool as Jesus feeding the 5,000. But let's just be clear. It's still really awesome. Let's see you do it. Some of you have experienced that, but it's been through him. I mean, you're like 4,000. Now it's no 5,000. Come on, that's a lot of people. And uh, he did both. And uh, we're going to go to chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 1 says, In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. So don't you dare complain if we reach noon and we're not done yet. Three days, guys. (laughs) No food either. And look what Jesus says. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. He's not even concerned that they'll stop listening. He's just like, when they go home, they'll faint. That's what I'm concerned about. (laughs) So anyway, if I send them away hungry to their homes, you notice it gets quiet. Okay, he he might be serious. Let's, Let's just move on. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. Verse 4. And all the disciples answered him, 
where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Now, they've been here before, right? Two chapters before, they've been here. Notice they ask a different question. Do you remember the first time Jesus said to one of the disciples, he said, where should we get them bread? And the disciple answered and said, how? And with how much money? And Jesus didn't say, how are we going to get bread? How are we going to pay for it? He said, where are we going to get it? So now they know the right question. Where do we get this bread? He said, how many loaves do you have? But even then, guys, they should have clued in. We've been here before. Deja vu. If we have some bread, we're good. But, you know, they're still stuck in natural land. And so it says, he, they said seven. He directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves. He gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered them to be served as well. And they ate. Here's a key. They were satisfied. That means they didn't have any more room. That means that Jesus didn't just say, be happy, I fed you something. That if he's already multiplying, he might as well do it all the way. And they get full. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. In verse 9, about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees sat down and began to argue with or came out, sorry, and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Just multiplied bread and fish for 5,000 and their families, and now for 4,000. The Pharisees say, yeah, that's cool, but what about a sign? Parlor trick. Show us something cool. The blind guy? Yeah, I've seen that before. He hadn't, but, you know, that's because he was blind. The lame guy, all right. But, but how about the sign? And he said, I love this. It says they were seeking from a sign from heaven to test him. I love what it says in verse 12. Sighing deeply in his spirit. Some of you know this feeling. Well, it's not just an audible sigh. It's an internal in the depths of your spirit sigh. Like, ah. So why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now look, later on he says, I, I, sh- I mean, the Bible calls them signs and wonders. He performed many signs there, it says. So why does it say they won't get a sign? Because if that's not a sign for them, if their hearts are hardened, it doesn't matter what he does, it won't be a sign for them. A sign is only a sign if you're willing to acknowledge what it says. So you don't get a sign if raising the dead is not a sign to you. If healing the lepers is not a sign to you, if, if the lame walk and the blind see and those aren't a sign to you, you're not going to get a sign. I'm sorry. This generation, which he's not talking about the people alive at the time, he's talking about these people right here, this attitude, this kind of person, this group of people that are constantly seeking for a sign will get none. I've heard people quote this verse and say, so you see, we're not supposed to ask for miracles. We're not supposed to ask for this. That's not what he said. Jesus was happy when they brought their sick to him. He healed them all. He didn't get on to them. Stop bringing me your sick people looking for miracles. No. He gets on to them because they see miracles and don't believe them. The people that are getting in trouble are not the people that believe in miracles. The people that are getting in trouble are the people that see them and say, no, I want to see the sign. I don't believe it. 
Verse 13. Verse 13, he says, Leave it, it says, Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side, and they'd forgotten to take bread. They had all those leftovers, and they forgot them. These disciples, right? They could have just hired somebody, right? Somebody, you know, you know, a personal assistant's trained better than this for sure. But these guys are the best, the best he's got right now. He, he, he chose them for their future, not their present. And, uh, Forget all that bread. What do we do with those leftovers? Oh, yeah. They get in the boat. They realize they forgot any bread. You know, and I understand the way they feel. They're not going to bring this up to Jesus yet. Right? Did you forget that? Oh, yeah. You forgot that. I don't forget that. Who's going to tell Jesus? I can tell Jesus. Yeah, I can visit that. Let's keep it quiet for now. Maybe he'll tell us. He was giving orders to them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So, le- so that's the effect that religion has on you, and that's the effect that the world has on you. He says this. So they say, leaven, bread again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They can't get their mind off the bread. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, leaven of Herod, and the le- leaven makes bread bread ah again he knows he's teasing us dancing around the issue jesus aware of this said to them why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread i love the fact that they thought they could keep some secrets from jesus just like adam and eve playing hide and seek with god let's just let's just whisper and he won't know the guy that knows the thoughts of the pharisees when they don't say anything but if we're real quiet and we put our hands like this, he won't know what we're saying. Knowing what they were discussing, he said, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? And here's the question. Do you have a hardened heart? So what can we draw from this? If you have a soft heart, you will see and you'll understand. You'll see miracles and you'll understand. You'll see in the word You'll get revelation, and you'll get it. But if you have a hardened heart, doesn't matter how many miracles you see. You don't understand them, you don't get them, and you don't believe. The question's not whether you're going to see miracles. You will. You have. The question's whether you're, how your heart's going to be when you see them, how your heart's going to be when you remember them, and are you going to shrug them off and realize, I don't know what happened, but I don't think God can come through this part. Do you have a hardened heart? Why does he think they have a hardened heart? Because they're saying they don't have any bread. Not because they're saying that that miracle is bogus. They don't doubt the miracle in the past. But here's the problem. They don't see how that miracle affects right now. They don't see how the past affects their present. They don't see how the fact that Jesus already did it means he can do it again. You see, a hardened heart doesn't link those things. A hardened heart will say, well, if he wants to do it, he'll do it, but I'm sure not going to expect it. But the, what he wants them to do, you see, they're not getting in trouble. I mean, see, sometimes we think we're doing Jesus a favor by not expecting something. That's the religious attitude is if I don't expect something, I'm doing him a favor. Then he's not obligated. That's not what God's looking for. He said he's looking for faith. He's looking for people to expect something. He was not impressed with people that said, 
but you don't have to do anything. He was impressed with people that came to him and said, you don't even have to come to my house. I know if you just say the word, it'll get done. God, God wants people to have high expectations of him. Not that he's your genie in the bottle that you can just boss around and tell him what you want to do. But when he gives you a promise, he gives you his word and says, here's what I am for you. I'm your provider. I'm your supplier. I'm the one who, who does all these things. I've died for you. I've given my life for you. I bore wounds that you may be healed. Then he expects that you expect something from him. It's not bad to pray big. Jesus was impressed with the big prayers and the big askers. The only people in the Bible that it says he was marveling at and he was wondering at how great their faith were were the people that dared to ask for things they weren't even supposed to ask for. He was never impressed with somebody that budgeted him. God's not impressed by that. And that's what religion will teach you, but you can't find it in the Bible. You start seeking those things instead of seeking him, you're, yeah, sure, you're off track. But when he's your goal and he's your purpose and you trust him for everything, he wants you to expect high things of him. It says here, do you have a hardened heart? Verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And listen to this, do you not Here's a question that I'm sure Jesus has asked you and asks me regularly. Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? And do you not remember? Jesus is saying, do you remember? And if you don't, is it because your heart is hard? Because he says, do you not remember? The next verse, he says, do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. He said, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, seven. And he was saying, do you not yet understand? Now what are they supposed to say? Yeah, I get that you can do miracles. You see, they weren't supposed to say he can do miracles because they knew that. They knew he did miracles. They didn't doubt that they saw a miracle. What they doubted was, will we see it today in this boat? Can we depend on him every time? Or is this just a freaking nature thing that happens every now and then? And guys, they got in trouble for thinking like that. Don't think that it's just neutral not to believe God. It's a choice. You're in or you're out. You got it. You got to either believe him or not. But you can't just say neutral because no response to God is a response. It's saying no. No faith is something. You know. So he says, he says, guys, don't you understand? Where did this all come from? It came from the fact that they didn't have any bread, and he's saying, I can make bread come out of nowhere. So, here's the question. If God did it before, do I have a right to expect him to do it again? No. Does he have to do it the same way he did it before? No, he doesn't. Often he won't. Because you know what? When you start, when sometimes he does that differently just so we can see that he's not bound to one way and we don't get so religious that we, you know what I mean? We get so caught in tradition that we think he just does it because we're doing it this way. Sometimes I think he likes to switch it up just so that your faith is in him and not in your method. All right? 
so that you don't think the reason the water came out of the rock is because I hit it too hard. But you realize that if he tells me to talk to the rock, Don't you understand? Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and told him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes <laughs> and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? We're going to try to, would you like us to have a healing line at the, at the end? We'll do it this way. He looked up, I said, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and looked intently and was restored. He began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter even the village. So they're seeing a bunch of stuff. They see a miracle before they get on the boat. They see a miracle when they get off the boat. But the real conversation on the boat is, why are you worried you don't have faith? And what were they meant to do? They were meant to remember something. If they couldn't bring it up to their mind, Jesus said, I want you to remember it. He walked them through it like a father patiently talking with children and saying, let me walk you through it. Remember the problems. And, and, and sometimes we glaze over when someone's talking. Somebody might be dealing with today. Sometimes we just say, yeah, I remember. But he's very careful. It's important to Jesus, apparently, that they remember specifically how much did we have left over? He said this. He said, what about the 4,000? How much did you have left over? And he made them answer the question. He didn't just preach to them. He, he involved them. He engaged them and said, I need you to talk back to me because I need you to know. I need us to be on the same page. I need you to engage with me here. Don't you remember this? And I'm going to make sure you remember this because, you know, your kids are always like, you say, do you remember what I told you? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they really don't, you know, or they, they, they kind of remember the gist of it. Jesus walks them through it and says, I want you to remember. I want you to make a connection from what I did then to what I can do right now. God needs you to do that. God wants you to do that in life is that you're able to connect the goodness of God here to the goodness of God in my future. Not that you're bound to what he did in the past because he does greater and greater things but that you will remember if he could do that and realize that these are very different miracles. The disciples are with Jesus in a boat. There's no crowd. There's no grassy hill. And there's no bread to start with. You remember before, Jesus at least had something to start with. He's got nothing in the boat. So you've got to be able to think outside the box a little bit. Don't think that Jesus just has to do it exactly like it happened before. Apparently, they're supposed to make a link from a time where he's preaching a service with thousands of people to a moment when there's only 13 of them in a boat. So maybe we can't blame them for being so doubtful because maybe we wouldn't have made that connection either. Sometimes you got to say, here's the thing that I need to know. Not that just Jesus can do a specific miracle, but that if he can do that, he can do anything. That not that, that God can do these kind of miracles. These are easy. These are medium. These are hard. But if he's God, if, if he can do that, he can do anything. But think about it, guys. Is it any greater for God to heal a headache than heal cancer? Why would it be? He's messing with nature. I mean, not, not nature as he created it, but the, the nature under the curse. He's changing something that's already set in motion. If he can heal a headache, if he can make a leg grow out, I don't think it's any stretch for him to, to do something really, really big. 
the stretch is for us to connect us to, right? It's not for him. I mean, if he's infinite in power, if he's omnipotent, he's got all the power he needs to answer every prayer on the planet. It's not a big leap for him to say, I will give you $5 or I will give you a million. It's not his big push. The question is, number one, what does his word say? What is his will in this matter? Second, can we believe that if he did it then, he can do it now, even if we're not exactly the same circumstances? That the question is not the circumstances. The issue is not the circumstances. The issue is the God that did it. The God that does miracles can do miracles again. You don't have to do it exactly like he did it then. You don't have to say, God, come in here in a wheelchair, and you go, okay, here's how they did it in the book of Acts. I need you to sit by the door of the church, and I need you to ask me for money. I don't need any money. Ask me for money. (laughs) Not cash. Silver and gold. Say silver and gold. And I'll say silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I do. Here's he, because King James is probably safer. Right? It doesn't have to be the same way. He's in a boat. He's not on the land. He's got 13 instead of thousands. It's different, but it's the same God. If God did it then, he can do it now. But maybe the past isn't such a dirty word. Maybe what's dirty is your past, your leaving, leaving your guilt and shame, your failures, and, and putting them up there is just as big as God's success is just as big as God's works. You know what you need to do? You need to let him overwhelm your past so that when you look back, you don't see you and the things you did wrong, but you look back and you see him. There are going to be times where you look back and they're one and the same. Your failure is, is, is linked to his goodness. And you look back and there was a reason you needed him to rescue you because he did something stupid. And so you've got to be selective in it. You, gotta rem- you can remember, I did this, but you've got to remember, that's, that's dead, that's crucified, that's paid for. What I really need to focus on is not the bad thing I did, but the good thing that God did. And if I can remember that, I can say he'll do it again. In memory, faith looks forward, but it also kind of looks backward and says, here's what he's done. Often you see, um, in, the, in the Bible, you see men quote and say, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and what they're doing there is they're referencing the fact, first and foremost, that they have a covenant with God through their father. So it's a, it was a covenant through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That that was a covenant that they have a right to. And secondly, they're emphasizing the goodness of God to those men extends to me. And if God did it for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I can expect it for me as well. You know, Paul says, through, by the Holy Spirit, he says, forgetting what lies behind I press forward to the upward call of Christ Jesus, to the goal of the upward call of Christ Jesus. And we know that's important. Forgetting what lies behind. In other words, I'm not going to rest on my past success or failures. I'm not going to just stay here and say, well, I did it, I finished it. I'm going to continue to press forward. It doesn't matter what I've accomplished. I'm going to keep going and know there's more ahead of me. But even Paul went back and said, listen, there was a moment. He says to one church, he said, there was a time, he says to Corinthians, there was a time when we thought for sure we were going to die. And we had the sentence of death, not just around us, but in us. We believed we were going to die. But God, who had mercy on us, and he says, we, we, this all happened so we know. He said, he said, the thing we found out is that God can raise the dead. He's the resurrection and the life. And so he says, in the end, he said, God had mercy on us. 
and he said, um, that he said he delivered us, and he will yet deliver us. Do you see what he's doing? He's looking back and saying, God did it then. And he's pulling it forward and saying, and he'll do it again. Can we say that? God did it then, and he'll do it again. He can. He will. So you, your memory's got to be somewhat selective. You've got to remember what, you've got to be just, you've got to mimic your, your father. You've got to imitate him. And if he blots out and removes your sin, you've got to stop looking at it as if it's there anymore. And if you've been forgiven, it's not part of your present anymore. It's dead. It's crucified with Christ. But Jesus didn't crucify his goodness. Jesus didn't put to death his promises. He put to death your sin. He put to death your flesh. When I look back, I still got to be able to say, he's been good. And you know what? If it helps you to say, he's good to Abraham, then say it. That's what Romans do. The letter of the Romans ties it directly into our believing that Jesus had, could save us by faith. He says, look back at Abraham. Look what, Jesus, look what God did for Abraham. And he ties it into our present. If you don't have enough successes in your, in your history, if you're new at this and you go like, I, I haven't seen too many miracles, certainly none in my life, borrow some. It's biblical and scriptural to borrow some and say, God did it for them, he can do it for me. And then build yourself up and experience the life of God, experience some miracles, and then be able to say, he did it for me too. We don't build it on, we, and really, and I want to, want to make sure you know this we don't build our faith on experience experience can lie to us because we don't see everything we see a very limited perspective we don't know everything that happened we build our faith on the promises of God but we're often encouraged by the fact that we can look back and see those promises have held true let's turn to a very familiar scripture Psalm 103 Jesus is saying, even today, do you not remember? Do you not remember? Psalm 103, verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Don't forget one thing that he's promised. Don't forget one thing that he's done. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, so now we're having a history lesson. And you say, but that's the past, but it's relevant to today. Because if God did this for them, he can do this for us. He said he showed his ways to Moses, his acts to the son of Israel. And he wants them to remember what God did for our forefathers. Remember this, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding. That means he's got way more than you'll ever need in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He
he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, the flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do. Isn't that awesome? He says again, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels. Mighty in strength to perform his word. Obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts. You who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And again, forget nothing that he's done. Forget nothing that he's promised. If you have to be told not to forget, if you have to be told to, to remember, it's not a hard leap for me to tell you, you choose what you think about. And you may have grown up being just like a person that, you know, was studying and then was chasing butterflies and then all of a sudden was thinking baseball and you're flighty and you're thinking all over the place. But thank God he gave you a spirit of love, power, and a disciplined mind. So you can keep your mind fixed on him. You can keep your eyes on him. And you can't control what you're thinking about. Martin Luther said it famously as he had that old monk's tonsure that went around his head, looked like, kind of like a bird's nest. He said, I can't stop birds from flying over my head, but I can stop them from making a nest in my hair. Taken from a man whose hair looked like a nest. He said, I, in other words, what he's saying is, I can't stop a thought from coming up, but I can stop myself from spending all that time thinking about it. Guys, aren't you're you're not you're not doomed to hell because you had a thought. Thank God we're saved from hell by the blood of Jesus. Thoughts have nothing to do with it. But your life's not over because you had a bad thought. You don't have to go and, and, and cry at the altar because there was a thought that popped in your head. Here's the problem: don't entertain that thought. Don't give it two seconds. Don't play it out in your mind. But you know what God gave us? Something. Some of you go, I have one, and that's wonderful. When you're my son Moses' age, he's, you know, at, at his age, he can pick up so many languages. Natalie was sharing to me about how many languages a little baby at, before eight months can just can naturally get the syntax and the context of it, and they can, they can pick it up real easy. That's because the front of their brain is hard. I mean, soft, sorry. It's soft. That, that prefrontal cerebral cortex is soft so that they can pick up and absorb knowledge, and they're real good at learning things. And so when we go back and try to learn math that we forgot, as, as, that we learned in school, and we try to learn it as adults, it's harder for us than it was back then because our brain's not designed for that. But what, what, what we do have as adults is once that part gets hard, God gave us this beautiful thing. It's like a flight simulator. You know, you, you have a flight simulator that allows you to, to – Try that out before you crash the plane in real life. Like you can just go and practice and you play it out and there's no danger. Your brain has the ability to do that. It, it has the ability to play out a situation based on the knowledge that you have. 
based on the factors and the experiences you have when someone says, hey, let's go play in the road on an icy day. You go, that's not going to turn out well. Because I've got some facts I'm pulling from from my past. I've got some knowledge about cars and ice and stupidity of humanity. I'm going to pull all that in a nice little formula and my brain, it, you may not even realize it, but your brain plays it out real quick and says, hey, Dad, do you notice a child doesn't do that? It takes a while before they can. It's like, this is a great idea. This is an amazing idea. Let's, let's put an apple on our head and throw hatchets at each other. Yay! You didn't have that same childhood? <laughs> Children are not as good at planning. They got a little bit of it, but they don't have the same as you. You can see further ahead. Why? You have experiences, and your brain's different than theirs, and you're able to say, bad idea. You're able to play it out and say, bad idea. Here's the problem. You got to decide what goes into that equation. It's a temptation for you to say, in the past, I've, I've, I've fallen on the job. I, I stepped up. And I stepped up and had some courage, and I spoke up, and you know what? I made the next time it comes along and God says, here, here, I want you to do this. Let me stand up and say something. And you get to ask him. And you play it out and you go, oh, you know what? The victim is last. But you need to remember what God's done in your life and what God's promised in his word and what he's done throughout history. That's the fact that you need, that's the formula you need to input in there to say, I'm going to forget the failures and I'm going to remember his wrong for me to forget that because that's the big thing. That's the main thing. Let's remember what God has done. And you have to make the link just like the disciples had to think outside the box. I hate saying that because that phrase is used so much it's almost inside the box instead of think outside the box. But think outside of your comfort and realize that you may not be able to jack it up and eat it. Be able to say if God was able to multiply bread to those thousands you know what he can provide for my family and that thought will come into your head that, oh, and he did it, and it's very religious. When he did it for the thousands, they were there to hear the word. It was ministry. This is just your family. Quit being selfish. But isn't that the same thought the disciples had in the boat? There's not thousands here. We're not ministering. It's just us. And the scripture says, and Jesus said, having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you have a hardened heart? Do you done it before. I will do it again. I may do it differently. But if I'm the God who can do miracles then, I'm the God who does miracles now. But should my father, as a young minister in a, in a denomination that didn't believe that miracles were for today, that, that any prophecy or gifts of the Spirit were for today, what shook him was when he opened the Bible and he said, why don't I see the God that's in this book today in my caused him to have a shaking of his foundation and a transformation in his belief system. And he embraced the God who was then and is now. As Tracy Harris said, and I like what he said, God told him one day and spoke to him one day because there, there were those who said that was an age of miracles. They talked about the Bible and said that was an age of miracles. And the Lord said to him very clearly, he said, Son, there's never been an age of miracles. There's always been a God of miracles. 
You need to remember that. Because you're, your brain's going to give you all these reasons why you should be excluded from expressing this freedom. But here's what you need to remember. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can't tell him how he's going to do it. You're not his boss. He's yours. But you can trust him. He is yours.